Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Nahmaduhu wa nusalli ala rasulihil kareem amma ba'ad. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. And we say blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. All right. Uh, can someone nod? Just let me know you can hear me. You can't? Okay, very good. Okay. So, so today, inshallah, we are finishing up Surah Al-Fatiha, which is nice. It only took us about uh, eight sessions to, 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 to get this far. Uh, so, so give or take about five or six hours uh, to, to, to finish up the surah. Uh, we started discussing sirat wal ladhina an'amta alayhim. So yesterday, ihdinu sirat wal mustaqim, guide us on the straight path. And one of the big points we mentioned, one of the big points we mentioned was that how I conceive of Islam is going to influence how I practiced Islam. And one way to frame that is, do I imagine life inside Islam easier or life outside Islam easier? And the short term, life inside Islam is probably more difficult. And the long term, in this life as well as the next life, life inside Islam is much, much easier. And another way to imagine that is, is hypothetically, imagine there's no Allah, there's no Prophet, peace be upon him, there's no Akhirah, that someone just made up the whole thing. And if we look just purely from a secular perspective, boom. so no question of Iman or anything like that, think about what Islam is giving you. With the daily prayers, it's giving you a daily regimen. It's giving you structure and stability to your day. Okay. Uh, further, uh, what is Ramadan giving you? It's giving you this intense period of purging and purification. Okay. What is Zakah and what is Sadaqah giving you? They're giving you this, this also this purification and connection to, to those who are in need. What is the Hajj giving you? The Hajj is giving you, at the very least, a connection to a global community, uh, as well as, as this sense of, of, of history and such. So I'm saying from a secular perspective, there are all these various things that are being offered from, from Islam. Now, when we speak of it as truth, we're saying you're also tapping into truth. When we speak from the perspective of faith, we're looking at how to grow faith and, and, and such. But what is the overall point? The point is that I have to really consider for myself, is life inside Islam easier or is life outside Islam easier? Because if I feel life outside Islam is easier, then there's going to be a longing inside of me for that type of life. Might be a small, might be a large lung, but it will linger. Yeah. And so the goal is to have all 10 toes inside Islam as opposed to nine toes in, one toe out. Okay, so, so we also touched upon uh, in the references to Surah 4, Surah An-Nisa, what are we gonna find on the straight path? What is the straight path? And we said in its essence is to obey Allah and his messenger. And then we said there's four types of people you're gonna find on the straight path, meaning four consequences of being on the straight path. And those are the Nabiyin, Siddiqin, Shuhada, Salihin. Nabiyin, the prophets, peace be upon them. And that, that line is done with Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Siddiqin, the people who recognize truth when they see it and they embrace it, the shuhada, the witnesses, the martyrs, these are the people who are living the truth, living Islam, living their obedience to Allah. 
and the messenger, peace be upon him. And then the, the third, so the people who have such upright character that people around them feel compelled to have upright character. And then we also gave a shortcut. How do I become one of these people? What is the official answer? It's to obey Allah and his messenger. And what is the shortcut? Put yourself in the company of those people who are doing those things. And in that, those are the best company to keep. And so we finish off speaking about the way our company influences us, how our friends influence us, and how we influence our friends. And, and as the undergrads from Loyola know, this is often something that I'm mentioning at the beginning of each year, the beginning of their college careers, that you should be very militant with yourself about who you keep company with. Because I've seen students who've come in very, very upright and innocent, but they've gotten involved in the wrong crowd and it takes them down. And I've seen some people who've come up at, uh, who've entered at whatever level, but they've been involved in the right crowd and it brings them up. And right crowd, I mean, both, I mean in terms of Dean, including character, including academic uh, efforts and such. And so that is how powerful your inner circle uh, is and can be. So now another point to think about. In, in this, this last ayah, we're defining, and this is also still a little bit of review, we're defining the straight path three ways. The path of those whom you have favored, number one, not of those on whom is anger, number two, nor of those who are astray, right? Three ways we're, def we're defining the straight path. The path of those whom you have favored. So, so one question, and, and again, answer this either with microphone or with uh, the chat box. What is, so when we're speaking about favors, oops, when we're speaking about favors, what's the difference between a favor and a wage? How would you answer that question? Anybody? A wage is earned. Feel free to either unmute yourself. Can you hear me? Yeah, Eve, go for it. A wage is earned as a favor is something that can just be given to you either way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Santiago's point is almost exactly the same thing. Yeah. And so, so a favor is given. A wage is owed. And so, so one point to really consider is how much of my existence is actually a favor. The first favor is existence itself. What else is a favor? The air is a favor. Sunlight is a favor. So think back to when we spoke about the beginning of the surah. We said, we spoke of Allah as Rahman and Rahim. Rahman, one way we define it is that it's general Rahmah for everyone. Regardless of whether someone's a believer or not, regardless of whether someone is upright or not, there's an aspect of God's Rahmah that goes to everyone. And then the Rahim, we said, is particular. A unique relationship of Rahmah that he has with me versus you versus the next person, so forth and so on. But all of that is favors. And so then the question is, what does God owe me? 
And so the short answer, so, so in terms of favors, that's literally almost everything Allah has given me. And it's probably even accurate, but I'm just for, for sake of convenience, it's probably even accurate just to say everything, literally. But sometimes it takes a level of faith to truly appreciate everything as a favor from God. Okay. So, so, so this would be me and Allah. Or let's make even uh, uh, better, let's say Allah to me. What does he owe me? This is, so to speak, the deal he's made with me. Okay. So the promise he made. So even the promise he is making is a favor. Okay. Which is compensation for my beliefs and efforts. So one of the difficult points that is easy to intellectually understand, but is hard to internalize for many people, is that just about everything of my existence is literally a favor. God did not owe this to me. He could have given me zero in everything, including existence. So existence itself is a gift. Sight is a gift. Hearing is a gift. Food is a gift. Air is a gift. Now, if he is giving something to someone else, it doesn't diminish what he's giving me. Okay. So if Allah is giving something to someone else uh, and I start getting jealous, then I'm overlooking all the favors he's given me. My whole existence, my whole being is favors. And then the wage is that he also promises that, all right, if you do X, he's going to give me Y. If you do this wrong thing, he's going to take away things. So then that leads to the next question. Can you think of anyone who has never received a favor from Allah. Any thoughts? Especially based on how we just defined it. Is there anyone who has never received a favor from Allah? The answer is obviously no. Everyone has received favors from Allah. Therefore, what am I really asking for when I'm asking for to Allah to put me on the path of those whom you have favored? At one level, the path of Allah's favors 
is the path of seeing and recognizing the favors Allah has given me. Or recognizing Allah's favors on me. So when I'm saying to Allah, guide me to the straight path, the path of those whom you have favored, okay? one way we define it is obedience to Allah and his messenger. Okay? And by defining it as the path of Allah's favors, what are we also saying? Guide me to see the favors of my life. Guide me to see the favors in my life as favors. If I see my life as favors, how am I going to respond? How would you answer that? And you're going to say it from gratitude. Yeah. Santiago, were you saying something? Alhamdulillah. Yes, exactly. That if I see my life as favors, then my response. is alhamdulillah, it's gratitude. So, Surah Al-Fatiha, this whole Surah, is a prayer. We said yesterday, so Al-Fatiha, we said yesterday, I or we are speaking to Allah, And what are we asking? We are asking for guidance. Sorry. We are asking for guidance in what is an essence of what we are really asking for. We're asking for gratitude. We're asking to be made grateful. And so one of the repeated points you've been hearing from me and you'll hear from me is that one of the essences of connection with Allah is that we are grateful. And thus, that first assignment is the gratitude assignment. <clears throat> I mean, I've had students over the years, and I think I've mentioned this, where uh, they'd sit in my office and they're going through some struggles, and I asked them, all right, can you list for me five things in your life that you should be grateful for? And they couldn't even come up with five. And these are this, and one example I'm thinking of is a person who is completely healthy. There's some, 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 some minor type of health issues, uh, has all kinds of family problems, 
but couldn't come up with uh, more than two things to be grateful for. And so some of that is how we are perceiving life, how we're perceiving the world. And that is one of the essences of the entire message of the Quran. Like we said, it's focused so much on your thinking. Good. So when I'm saying, I'm saying, guide me, put me on the path, the straight path. And what is the essence of the straight path? It's obedience of Allah and his messenger. And what is a consequence of that? That I'll have more clear uh, appreciation of truth, that I will practice it more, and that I'll be more upright in my character. And what is an essence of that? Gratitude. I'll see my life as favors, and I'll respond with gratitude. As that is, once again, to, re er, to recap, when we spoke about Rahmah, we said there's two parts to Rahmah. One is the giving of mercy. Now let's say, um, and the other is intimacy or closeness. And when does that happen? Uh, via a, a response of gratitude. So this is one of the essences of the entirety of the Islamic tradition. Development of gratitude. And development of gratitude, how? By appreciating the Rahmah of Allah. Okay. But let's take it further. We have the second part. So one way we define the straight path is the path of those whom you have favored. Another way we're defining the straight path not the path of those on whom is anger. Okay. So a couple of metaphors. Think of gratitude is like water. Okay. Now, ingratitude would be the opposite of this. And ingratitude is a type of anger. I mean, it feels like anger, doesn't it? That if I'm ungrateful, that Allah Ta'ala is pouring all this stuff on me and I'm ungrateful. No, you didn't give me anything. Good. So ingratitude is a type of anger and the metaphor of anger is fire. Yeah, Santiago, I'll get to that in a second also. Yeah, inshallah. So ingratitude is like fire. And so in your heart, one or the other will be more dominant. Either you will have more gratitude in your heart, which will extinguish the fire of anger, or you'll have more anger in your heart, 
which will evaporate the gratitude. So once again, to get a sense of how does gratitude operate, let's say I give you a hundred bucks. If you're grateful, you will feel like I gave you a thousand dollars. If I give you a hundred bucks and you're ungrateful, you're going to feel like I gave you $10 or that I owed it to you or the world owes it to you. Okay. That's all part of anger. And think about how fire operates. Fire tries to stay alive by destroying. You know, so if you have a fire in a forest, it's burning down one tree and to stay alive, it needs to burn down the next tree and the next tree and the next tree until there's nothing left. So for example, the, the surah that many of us have memorized, let's go back to Quran. Surah al-Masad, Tabat Yada. And so, <clears throat> Uh, a little bit uh, of backstory in how the Quran is studied. The first way that the Quran is studied is what backstory do we have? Okay, and this is often called Asbab al-Nuzul, the occasion of revelation. Okay. And so, with with any passage, what do we have in terms of the context at the time of the Prophet's life, peace be upon him? Is this early? Is this late in his life? And what was going on before? How do people respond? So forth and so on. And so this surah is revealed very early, and the Prophet, peace be upon him, originally is preaching his message quietly to family members, to people close to him. And then he gets the instructions to preach publicly. And the practice when you wanted to make an announcement publicly is you go to the main square where the Kaaba is, where the, the, the cubicle structure is, and you climb up on this hill and, and often the person to get their attention would take off their clothes to get the attention, but the prophet didn't take off his clothes. And he's getting everyone's attention. And he says to the people, oh, my people, if I told you there's an army behind this hill, would you believe me? They said, yeah, of course, you're, you're a sadiq al-amin. You are so truthful, we can't even comprehend that you would not speak the truth. He says, well, I'm warning you, there's a day of judgment coming. And so in the crowd is his uncle, Abu Lahab is his nickname who is also responsible for being the caretaker of the idols in the Kaaba. Okay. The Kaaba in Muslim tradition, as well as the tradition of the Quraysh, was originally built by Abraham. Abraham, peace be upon him, was a house of monotheism. Prior to that, it was first built by Adam, washed away in the flood, rebuilt by Abraham and his son Ismail, Abraham and Ishmael. And, and then in the centuries later, it became a house of idol worship, probably about nine generations before Muhammad, probably about a thousand years after after Abraham and and so now it became a house uh, holding the idols of the various tribes of the Arabian Peninsula and so Abu Lahab was the caretaker of that and he was the uncle of the prophet peace be upon him and when he hears the prophet's message he shouts back at him may you be cursed or may your hands be cursed which in contemporary English would be like saying go to hell you know or a nice version would be go jump in the lake and the prophet, peace be upon him, receives this passage, and then he responds, and he says, may the hands of Abu Lahab be ruined, and he is ruined, or may he be ruined. His wealth will not avail him or anything which he gained. Okay, so it doesn't matter what he's accomplished in life. It's not going to help him. 
he is going to roast in a flaming fire. And his wife, the carrier of firewood, is going to have a neck, uh, have a, a, a rope around her neck. Okay. And this surprises everyone. This is not how Muhammad speaks. And look at how fierce this language is. Okay. So now, one way of interpreting the Quran is looking at uh, the the uh, the backstory. Uh, Hanin, you're referring the Hind that was the wife of Abu Sufyan. That was a, a different person. And so, so one way is what is the backstory? What is the historical context in terms of the first generation? Another then is what are some principles that we would derive from this? And in our language, one set of principles is that there's times where you have to speak truth to power. You have to be very, very blunt. There are other times you have to be very gentle with power. When Moses is being sent to the Pharaoh, who's this ultimate narcissist, he's being told originally to speak gently to him. Now, what else is interesting in here is that his name is Abu Lahab, which translates as the father of the flame. And so this is a nickname that he had. And there's a couple explanations given. One is because his face was this type of red that people thought he was just angry. Like he had this angry expression. So here, that metaphor is similar to our usage in English, someone who has a fiery temper. And so if we look at this, removing the history, looking at the metaphors that are being used, look at what this is saying. May the hands of the one with a fiery temper be ruined and may he himself be ruined. His wealth will not avail him, will not save him, nor what he has accomplished. He is going to roast in a fire. And his wife, the carrier of firewood, will have a noose put around her neck. So if we look at this through the language of the metaphors, what's taking place? This is a warning against anger. If you cannot control your anger, it doesn't matter what you've accomplished in life. You're going to ruin yourself in this world. You're going to ruin yourself in the next world. And then it's a caution to the family, do not feed the fire because then he's going to destroy you too. And so, so bringing this back to what we're speaking about, we're saying that it is in the nature of anger that anger tries to feed upon itself. And I'm sure you've all seen it with people uh, around you who sometimes when people get angry, it's like they're looking for reasons to get even angrier. And so the goal is to put out the fire of anger and replace it with the water of gratitude. And so taking this this point a step further, uh, Hadia's question, uh, can anger, some anger be justified? A uh, very, very important question. So let's look at the life of the prophet, peace be upon him. Do we have examples of him getting angry? You know, we go through thousands of narrations. Do we have examples of him going through anger? Actually, we do. There's probably about half a dozen cases in which he gets angry. You know, uh, the most famous one is the story of, of Abbas Watawalla, right? So what's the story taking place there? The prophet, peace be upon him, is trying to get the attention 
of this one wealthy man and who's not giving him the time of day because the prophet wants to give him the message. And then this blind man, Abdullah bin Maktoum, comes to him and, and tries to get his attention. And the prophet, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, the prophet, peace upon him, says to him, hey, hold on, I'll be with you in just a moment. And the prophet's trying to get this other guy's attention. And then the blind man nudges at him again, or tugs at him again, and the prophet looks at him and frowns. Now, his frown is probably so subtle that if I looked at it, you know, I would not even notice the frown. The blind man definitely didn't see the frown. What Allah Ta'ala saw what was in the prophet's expression, and so the prophet, the Allah Ta'ala sent down the, this revelation, this is the beginning of, I think it's Surah 80, uh, you know, he frowned and turned away. You know, and then the, the ayah continued, the surah continues, you know, he's trying to get the attention of someone who is, is not going to benefit from his message. Meanwhile, someone else is trying to come perhaps to be purified. And so that's one very, very famous example. And then in the Hadith narrations, there's a number of other examples. There's this long Hadith of Ka'ab bin Malik, who, who was with the Prophet on every expedition, but then skipped one. And the Prophet was troubled by it. And every time Ka'ab would see him, he'd see the Prophet's face seemed to be very, very troubled. And there's a couple examples, but over the course of 20 some years, um, it seems like he got angry or, or upset or disappointed probably half a dozen times at the most. Okay. And so, so to answer your question, Hadia, is there times where anger is justified? Absolutely. Right? There is righteous anger. Another example of that would be Omar, the person that I'm named after, as well as a few other people here. And, and we often associate his personality with anger. But what's interesting about him is you don't find examples of him getting angry if someone is insulting him. Rather, he is get, he's super firm on Dean, on religion, and if people are slacking off, then he gets really, really firm. And so, so there is a proper place for anger, absolutely. Uh, Samar's question, does the hadith about not being angry refer to not acting in anger versus not feeling anger? That's, that's, a, that's a really good question. So, so there's a narration, I think we're refer, you're referring to this one, where a person comes to the Prophet, peace be upon him, and says, okay, give me some advice. And the Prophet says, La taghdab, do not get angry. Okay? And then he asks for more advice. And again, the Prophet says this. And he asks for more advice. And again, the Prophet says this. And there's other narrations where then the Prophet gives other advice, but in one very famous narration. It's just, don't get angry, don't get angry, don't get angry. And you can read that a couple of ways, which, is, uh, uh, which, are, um, uh, which are very interesting, that uh, what is also related to anger, it's impatience. And so the prophet gave this person advice. And he's like, okay, give me more advice now. And the prophet's just giving him the, the, that one piece of advice, which is built in. He's also saying, be patient. So somewhere to your question, uh, I would agree with how you're framing it. One is an underlying anger, which is often rage. And that's what I'm saying is synonymous with fire here. And then there's the actual act of being angry. And there are times and places for that, yeah. And so the goal is to wash out this underlying anger. Okay. And, and so this is the metaphor of anger. Now, to, uh, to Santiago's question, when we look at the straight path, that ayah, it often says in parentheses, not of those on whom is your anger. Good. So let's do the math. Let's make sense of it. If I am responding to Allah's favors with anger, okay, 
then I am potentially earning Allah's anger. Yes. Meaning, if Allah is pouring mercy on me and I'm rejecting it okay, out of anger, then what am I asking to receive from Allah? And this is often easier to understand in the opposite realm. If I am pleased with what Allah is giving me, Allah is pleased with me. Okay. Now, if I am angry with what Allah is giving me, is he still giving me mercy? Yeah, he is. He's still pouring sunlight upon me. He's still pouring rain upon me. And he's keeping the door to forgiveness open for me. And he loves forgiveness so much that he would even prefer that I'm someone who, you know, commits sins but seeks forgiveness rather than someone who commits no sins at all. Because the act of seeking forgiveness is to turn back even tighter to God. So, so this is a way that is commonly understood that this is referring to your anger. But the actual text itself doesn't include the word your. Ghayr is other than Mavdub, anger upon them, alayhim on them. So the path of those whom you have favored, other than those on whom is anger. That's the literal translation. Now, another reason is in speaking of manners, this is a really, really important point. Uh, adab, which we would translate as manners. There are ways in which we are prescribed to speak and discouraged from speaking. So for example, when speaking of Allah, we're prescribed to only say good things. Out of manners. So for example, is Allah the creator of all? Yes. Is he therefore the creator of the devil? Yes, we haven't talked about the devil yet. Is he therefore the creator of the devil? Yeah, absolutely. Is he therefore the creator of evil? Yes. Out of manners, we only speak of the good. Uh, likewise, with the prophet, peace be upon him. We speak out of manners of the good. Likewise with the companions of the prophet. So for example, shortly after the death of the prophet, may peace be upon him, many of the tribal leaders across Arabia refused to start paying, refused to pay their zakats. And Abu Bakr then declared war on them, the first civil war and then that establishes peace. And then uh, about 10-ish years later, more than that, about 15 years later, then there's a second civil war. And this time we had companions against companions. And this is a reality of early Islamic history that then gets followed up with, with peace again. But our default when speaking about companions is to speak uh, good. Likewise with others in our lives. So this is the default of what we should be speaking. Now, naturally, if you're coming to my office with serious family problems, you're going to be talking about what's happening with your parents and what they're doing, this and that. You know, my father's being tyrannical, my mother's being tyrannical, so forth and so on. That's different because the intention there is healing. But I'm saying the default is to associate anything with Allah. You associate, it, you associate the good with him. Okay. And also, in the context of this surah, this whole surah is about the mercy of God anyway. 
But this last point, or the second to last point, is that, yes, there's a path of those on whom is anger. It is not in terms of meaning to be wrong to associate it with God's anger, but even the reference of God's anger, you find it very rarely in, term, in terms of the entire text. You do find God's reward and God's punishment, but in terms of anger, you find that very rarely in the text of the Quran. Punishment and reward, you find that pretty much almost exactly the same amount of times. And then the last point, those who are astray. And so here, it's not even a mention, a matter of gratitude, ingratitude. They're just lost. But to help make sense of what uh, the difference is between the path of anger and the path of, of being astray, think back to that line, you alone we worship and you alone we ask for help. The path of favors, you're fulfilling both. So if I'm on the path of favors, I am fulfilling and trying to fulfill you alone we worship and you alone we ask for help, the straight path. If I'm on the path of anger, then I might claim you alone we worship but then I turn my back on him. So we'll call that an X. And the people who are astray, they are wrong in terms of who they are worshiping, but they might still turn to the one they're worshiping for help. And so this last point, think of one of the very, very first lessons of the whole course is when we talk about the idea of the ilah. Which we translate as lowercase god g, or lowercase g god. And so the one who is astray is taking something else other than Allah as their ilah. They might be completely dedicated to it, but they're turning to something else, someone else. Okay, make sense? Let us stop right here, open the door for more questions about anything at all. Uh, let me just make sure I have everyone else. I think I've answered all the questions so far in the chat box. Anyone else have a question? I think Santiago, we missed you yesterday for you to ask the first question. There you are. Okay, go for it. <laughs> well, I, I was seeing if anybody else was going to go first. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you because there's something that kind of, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty optimistic, but this, this thing that I keep reading when I read the Quran, that it worries me. It says that there are some people that are just like always going to be lost and that you shouldn't even waste your time on them. 
I don't know if we, oh, do you have more to your question? Or? Well, I just like, can you, are there people that are, that, that will just never be able to find the way? So, so the answer, it's not that there will be people who won't be able to find the way, there are going to be people who won't seek the way. Does that change, uh, change things for you at all? Well, I don't know, maybe. Okay, okay hold on to it. Uh, we're going to be revisiting this point very much when we get to in the next surah, ayah six and seven. Okay. And, and, uh, and uh, this will be one of the, the strange points about the human experience is that there are going to be those people who are seeking truth and such. And there's going to be those people who just don't care. Mm. You know? All right. Okay. Very good. Uh, let's see. Someone, my husband has a question. What was the prophet's view understanding of God before revelation of Islam? Very good question. So his father's name is Abdullah. And so the people of Mecca did have a belief in a supreme being uh, that they named, that they referred to by the name Allah. Uh, but, and so introduced about nine generations or so before the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, there's a tribal leader who was a traitor, and he saw these people in Syria who were worshiping idols. And, and, and then he asked them, what are you doing? And they said, these idols help us get closer to Allah. And so he asked, can I have one of them? And so they give him one, and he comes back to Mecca, and he holds this idol saying, this idol, Hubal, is now our God. We are going to worship this as a way to get closer to Allah. And then over the course of the next few hundred years, uh, tribes started having their own idols that represented them. Sort of like how we have flags today, right? The flag of a country is sacred, but we don't worship the flag. They were worshiping their idols and these idols would be kept in the Kaaba. Then they also developed this whole structure of the Supreme Being having daughters um, even though they themselves didn't want to have daughters. And then they also had idols for particular purposes. Now, we don't have any indication that the Prophet, peace be upon him, turned to anything except for Allah. That his whole life seems to be only a connection with Allah, nothing connected to the idols at all. And this also seems to be the case with a number of his companions. So one of his companions, Abu Bakr, long before, he was an old friend of the Prophet, peace be upon him, long before the Prophet called him to Islam, Abu Bakr was called a Hanif. And these are people who are raised in the idol worshiping tribes, but they never actually bought into the, the idol worship. And, and so, so that's the, the, the common understanding of the prophet's understanding of God before the revelation of Islam. Any other questions? Or let me know if there's follow-up. Yes, I have a question. There's a Saudi translation of Surah Al-Fatiha where it demonizes Jews and Christians. Oh yeah, yeah. Go. What is that about? Okay, so so let's go back to here. So let's see if we can find it. Um, in fact, I forgot. I had to look up translation. Oh, maybe it's over here. Translations. And is it only a Saudi translation or is there a different translation that it says is, the same? Um, it is a, a commentary that we do find. Oops. Oh, sorry. Wrong surah. Um, 
And so usually I don't associate the translations as much with the country or the government and such, as opposed to the commentator. So, oh, this is interesting. So this way, this, uh, this particular, uh, this is the Mohsen Khan translation that you're speaking of. Uh, uh, but it, it would say here, uh, not of those who earn your anger, such as the Jews, not of those who went astray, such as the Christians. Is that wrong? Don, don, don. If we look back here, I was hoping to show it so all of you could see it, but what is the argument that people give and then take it for whatever it's worth to you? That some people will then say, this is Muslims, Jews, Christians. Okay. Now, does that fit in terms of what I've written on the chart? I think you can make the argument that it does. Uh, in terms of do Muslims and Christians believe in the same God? If we speak of the Father in Christianity and Allah, then yes. If we're speaking of Jesus, then no. Uh, are Christians very devoted? To, uh, to, to Jesus. I'd say very good Christians are in the sense that very good Muslims are devoted. Uh, and Jews, here uh, I'm not as uh, 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 consistent with this or uh, I don't agree with this as much and I'll make the point why that this is in course number two. We actually talk about this quite a bit. Oops. Uh, more accurately would be the children of Israel. And there the Quran directly says that they have earned the wrath of Allah. Good. Now, what does this then translate as in terms of action? Uh, does it then mean we are all cool and everyone else is bad? You could read it that way. I think uh, uh, that becomes more a ground of supremacy than actual da'wah and actual seeing humanity in people. So I'm arguing, so essentially to, uh, to answer your question, I'm saying this is a consistent commentary on this passage. Uh, and when we get into the, uh, the nitty and gritty of belief, yeah, the fact of the matter is that all three of these traditions are laying claim to truth. And at some point you have to be in one or the other or the other, right? At a shallow level, you can follow all, but then at some point you're either in this one, this claim to truth or that one or that one. Uh, and so if we were to frame this from within, for example, a Jewish perspective, uh, Christians and Muslims would be looked at as astray. If we looked at this within a textbook Christian perspective, Muslims and Jews would be looked at as astray. So from that perspective, I think it's consistent uh, but I think it's also much more destructive than beneficial in terms of contemporary application. Okay. Let me know what you think. Uh, uh, either I think it was uh, Hanin who was speaking or, or anyone else. Yeah, no, it was me. Thank you. That does yes. clear up some things. Okay. Any other questions? Silence. Okay, we can stop right here, inshallah. 
And uh, tomorrow we will finish off. Okay, Sana has a really random question. Go for it. Um, so yesterday, my brother and I were just talking, and he was like, "Why do we use like the Islamic calendar? Like, isn't it like, I don't know?" Because he's saying that like the Christian or this uh, the calendar that we use, Christian calendar, I guess. I don't know what else to call it. Um, is like so much more accurate, and like you know how we're always like, like. Ramzan is never in the same season. Like, it's always changing. Oh, so he's saying, why do we use the Islamic calendar? Right. He's saying that, like, isn't it obsolete? Because, like, isn't it the purpose of a calendar to, like, uh, like accurately have, like, a set time of stuff? I don't know. <laughs> like, I mean, if, so, so that's the first question. The first question is basically, what is... The purpose of a calendar and then prior to that is what is the history of each of the calendars so what's interesting is that uh from a couple generations after the time of the prophet peace be upon him the norm for the muslim world as well as everyone was often to have multiple calendars at the same time so you'd often have a religious calendar you would have an agricultural calendar and you might even have one for 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 commerce and so so the experience that Muslims have today is actually not new. It's very consistent with most of, of Islamic history. Um, at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, it was one calendar, but even that was uh, a breaking off of the calendar of the Quraysh, that there are some uh, uh, techniques that the calendar of the Quraysh, that the Quraysh use, including removing and adding months that the Islamic calendar uh, did not follow. Uh, but the modern calendar there that we have, uh, anyone know how old it is? The modern Gregorian calendar? We would like to think it's 20, 20 years old. No, it's actually about 500 years old. And a way to think about this is look at the prefixes, sept, oct, nov, dec. What is sept? Sept is seven, but it's the ninth month. Oct is eighth, but it's the tenth month. Nov is nine, but it's the 11th month. Dec is uh, 10, but it's the 12th month. Because uh, you have Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar who add months after them, July and August, or months are added related to them, which is knocking everything off. And so our calendar is a mixture of, of Romans and European Christianity. And so, so even, uh, Friday, uh, so Satcher is the day of Saturn. Sun is the day of the sun. Monday is the day of the moon. Thursday is the day of Thor, so forth and so on. And so it's a mixture of a number of things. Is it more accurate? I don't agree that it's more accurate. The thing that makes it easier to use is that it's dominant. Uh, I don't know how we'd measure that it's more accurate. Uh, you can even argue that the Islamic calendar literally renews every every month when you see the crescent then then the calendar resets itself uh, uh, and so uh Senna, let me know what your your, your brother uh, thinks about all that i like the islamic calendar so. um, yeah i mean i think that with the way he was like trying to frame it was that like because like you know how like uh how like when like so like a couple years back like maybe like six, seven, eight, I don't know, 10 maybe, that um, Ramzan was like, you know, in June, July, now it's in like May, like the fact that it just keeps moving. Um, and like, sometimes we have Ramzan in like the winter and sometimes in the summer, like he's saying that like in that sense, like there, it's not like, um, 
I don't know how to like explain it, but like, you know how it's yeah. like, just not sex. Yeah, that would be, uh, but maybe that's the intention that you're experiencing everything throughout every single season. So yeah, the way Eva's saying it, every season you get to celebrate or every season gets to celebrate Ramadan, whether it's summertime, wintertime, everything. Uh, that sounds to me like a perk, not a liability. But I understand, I understand the point of how it seems like it's not set, but what it's actually saying is if we look from through the perspective of the Islamic calendar, it's the other calendar that's not set. It really depends upon your vantage point. But some of that also is a statement on power, right? That there's the dominant calendar that, that everyone follows, which is essentially a European business calendar. Okay. Uh, Sylvester's contribution is a very, very important point. Again, this is something we talk about in course number two. Uh, that the incurring of God's anger is very much a, a Jewish idea. And so, so part of, uh, if we were to look at the framing of reality, part of the idea, one of the philosophies of Judaism is that we are exiled from God and then exiled from the homeland in earning the wrath of God. And then on Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur we are then seeking redemption. And, and so that is very much in how Jewish philosophy works. So thank you for that. Any other questions about anything at all? Okay, so I received a message. Why do you say Quraysh like that? Uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying it in a bad way, the Quraysh. Not talking about, you know, people who are named, for example, Qurayshi. That's a nice name, mashallah. Yeah. Anyone else? All right, so we'll stop right here and we will continue uh, tomorrow. There's one of these days this week where we're not having class. Uh, uh, no, this whole week we're fine. Okay, inshallah. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. May Allah tell you you all, inshallah. And we'll see you tomorrow. Wa akhir da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.